Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. My kids love superheroes. My eldest boy will put on his Spider-Man Spider costume and his plastic web shooters. He'll run around the house. He'll jump off the couch. He'll vocalize his own special effects, shooting his imaginary spider webs as he saves the world from evil. My youngest boy will also put on his, uh, uh, my two-year-old will put on his uh, superhero mask. It's this green mask with this colored colored eyes, uh, and he'll he'll stand in his special stances, and he'll growl like a dinosaur. And together, my two boys are the cutest crime-fighting duo known to mankind. I used to watch, uh, used to enjoy watching superhero movies too, until the tenth Spider-Man was made. I was like, okay, this is this is getting old. But even for adults, we like to imagine what it would what it would be like to fly around and fight villains threatening to destroy the planet. And then there's the real world. Then there's the real world. In the real world, things are different. If you think about it, we, we really don't need to be protected from the Joker or Lex Luthor. We, we don't need to be saved from some mass culprit with superpowers. No, instead, in the real world, we actually need a better kind of superhero. We actually need a, a, more, a more powerful kind of superhero. A superhero sent from heaven, empowered from the creator of heaven and earth himself. We need a superhero who will protect husbands and wives from hurting each other with their words. We need a superman who can protect marriages from divorce. We don't need to be saved from the Death Star. We need superheroes who will keep Christians from biting and devouring each other. We need a Batman and Robin who can keep churches from dividing and splitting in acrimony and hostility and anger. We need superheroes to keep neighbors from beating each other up over loud music and barking dogs. The superpower that we need most in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our churches, isn't the ability to leap tall buildings in a single bound. No, in today's passage, James will tell us that the superpower that we need in the dark gray backdrop of a world at war with each other is a heavenly wisdom 
that like a rose blossoms forth red, glistening petals of perfect peace. Last Sunday, we examined and considered the tongue and how our words spoken to others evidence is true saving faith. A faith without works is a dead faith, James explained in chapter 2. And a dead faith is often the reason why people in the church have such divided allegiances to God. If you profess with your words that you trust in Christ for your salvation, but with your actions betray that profession consistently, maybe it's time to reevaluate the faith you say you have, James tells us. And in today's verses, we look at a, another work of, 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 another confirming work of saving faith, and that work is the work of wisdom. Saving faith produces the work of divine wisdom. And according to James this morning, divine wisdom also has its own proof and evidence of authenticity. The, the wisdom that God gives is a wisdom that always is able to make peace with others. That's what James will concentrate on this morning. Authentic wisdom affects and generates peace in personal relationships and in wherever there are communities, communities of people joined together. If you are a Christian and if you are in a friendship or a relationship with a person or you're related somehow in some way to a group of people, your life must be a sanctifying, peacemaking agent. There are no troublemakers allowed in the church. If you're married, a wise spouse is someone who is able to consistently say and do things that contributes peace and harmony in the relationship. If you are a part of a church, the way you serve and minister and do life together with your fellow church members should be contributing to a rich culture of peace and unity. In a fallen world, chaos and discord is the, the default reality wherever people are found together. And therefore, Christians are called in marriages, churches, job sites, uh, neighborhoods to be peacemakers. Wholehearted Christians, believers who love the Lord with all their hearts, must show the reality of their salvation through the wisdom of peacemaking. That's what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so we move from the tongue of faith that we examined last week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, to the consideration of the peace of wisdom in chapter 3, verses 13 to chapter 4, verse 3. And I have two big hooks to hang your thoughts on this morning, and let me give them to you now. Number one, comparing and contrasting two kinds of wisdom. Number two, considering the cause of division and disorder. Point number one, found in verses 13 through 18, comparing and contrasting two kinds of wisdom. In this first section, James contrasts two kinds of wisdom, and, and he begins drawing up this contrast by asking an opening question in order to get the pot of our minds stirring. He, he asks in verse 13, who among you is wise in understanding? And it's the perfect opening question because no one doesn't think they're not wise in understanding. Even fools, especially fools. If you're a fool this morning, would you please stand up? You see? Nobody. Nobody thinks they're a fool. Fools have no idea they're foolish because fools always equate being right with wisdom. The fool mistakenly thinks 
that because he or she is right, which is hardly ever the case, that he's also wise and understanding when responding to conflicts or personal situations with actions that are unrighteous and sinful. This is how the fool thinks in his mind. Oh, I'm obviously right in the situation, and you're wrong, and I will not consider for a moment that I might be mistaken about whatever is happening, and because that's the case, now I get to do whatever I want in order to rectify the situation. This is the fool's definition of wisdom. So James immediately tells us in verse 13, no, 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 poor conduct and proud arrogance is never the fruit of authentic wisdom. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. James, in this opening verse, paints a picture with broad strokes about what real wisdom looks like. Authentic wisdom shows herself true by first displaying two overarching characteristics, good conduct and gentleness. Good conduct refers to the, the entire manner of your life. The Greek word for good means more than the English word good. It has the idea of excellence and beauty. A wise and understanding a person possesses an excellent and morally beautiful lifestyle. Having good theology does not necessarily make you a wise person unless that good theology generates good conduct. You can have a seminary degree and still be a fool. You can be a pastor of a church and still be a spiritually ugly person. Advanced degrees, six-figure six salaries don't make you wise. Even moral superiority and, and being on the right side of a conflict doesn't necessarily make you an understanding per person. In fact, all those things could be, can be roadblocks to wisdom because they tend to make people proud instead of gentle. But J James says that we demonstrate authentic wisdom and understanding through the gentleness of wisdom. It's good conduct, number one, and the gentleness of wisdom, number two. Gent gentleness in the Greek, pra prauteti, sometimes the, the word is translated meekness, if you have the KJV or the ESV, or if you have the NIV, humility. In, in classical work, uh, Greek, the word was used to de describe tame animals or, or soothing medicines or, or a gentle breeze. It's a word that that hugs. It's a word that caresses little children. The New Testament bears the same sense. John Wycliffe in the Wycliffe Bible translated the word mild. BDAG, the gold standard of Greek lexicons, defines the word this way. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance, end quote. True wisdom produces a lowly attitude of heart that is full of gentleness and mildness toward others. It is the opposite of arrogant self-assertion and, and ruthless domination. Gentleness doesn't mean cowardice or spinelessness or timidity. It's not a peace at any cost attitude, nor does the word suggest indecisiveness or wishy-washiness, a lack of confidence, shyness, or a withdrawn personality. In other words, gentleness has nothing to do with being a wimp. No one 
displayed this kind of gentleness more perfectly than our Lord Jesus Christ. He used the same word to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from, from me, for I am gentle. Gentleness is generated by a, a spiritual posture before God, understanding your position as a sinful creature in relation to a glorious Savior. Gentleness is God-word. Gentleness is God-centered as you recognize your, your human inability to accomplish spiritual fulfillment or to, to chart your own course in the world. This humility before God naturally translates then into humility toward others. Paul says in Titus 3.2 that we are to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. Next, in verse 14, James describes the antithesis of the, of the wise person. The person described in verse 14 is the opposite of a gentle or humble person. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is contrary to meekness. They are the direct opposites of gentleness. Do you have bitter jealousy? Aristotle de defined the word jealousy as a feeling you have because someone possesses something you do not have. The New Testament uh, meaning of the word is similar. It's a desire to possess things that are not really yours. It comes out of the Old Testament and the law where, where Moses commanded, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or whatever your neighbor has. Uh, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for this sinful jealousy in 1 Corinthians 3.3, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And the temptation to jealousy arises the most when we compare our lives with other people. Did you hear that? The temptation to jealousy arises the most when, when we compare our lives with other people. Someone posts pictures of their new house on Facebook, and instead of rejoicing with them, we compare their house with our house. And the thankfulness that you had on the day when you signed the papers and you received your brand new house keys suddenly dissipates into thin air. And these feelings of inadequacy rise in your heart about how small or how dated your house is. Another mother tells you how well their child is doing in school while you're getting ready to meet your kid's teacher about behavioral issues. Bitter jealousy can all arise in those moments. Sometimes we'll hang out with our, our, our kids' classmates and parents, and, and it's usually the parent who's having a little trouble with their kid. They're just angry. They're, they're hostile. All your closest friends are getting married one by one, and you're, you're still struggling to, 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 to find somebody to go on a date with you. You've You've been faithfully serving in a ministry for years, and the new guy gets picked to lead the ministry after the old leader steps down. And, and suddenly, discontentment uh, strikes you like a, like, a, like a cobra. You feel yourself to, uh, you begin to unravel and implode as bitter jealousy grips your heart like a vice. And this kind of bitter jealousy 
makes its presence felt in our hearts because bitter jealousy always comes with, verse 14, selfish ambition. If you're selfishly ambitious, you will be bitterly jealous. If you are selfishly ambitious, you will be bitter jealous. But where does this, salvation, this selfish ambition come from? Where does this selfish ambition come from? Selfish ambition comes from, listen to me, it comes from choosing to find satisfaction in this world instead of finding it in the heavenly riches of Christ. When our ambition is limited to what this world can offer alone, it is because we have tragically forgotten that a better treasure is waiting for you in heaven. Sinful jealousy comes together with sinful earthly ambition and they rear their ugly heads when we come across another person possessing something, some earthly temporal gift that we don't have. But friends, let, let me remind us this morning that we are no longer citizens of this world. That you and I, we have a, we have a new passport and it's stamped with the name of a better kingdom to come. Jealousy and ambition is a, is a short-sighted approach to life. Jealousy and ambition, they, they foster these emotions of insecurity and inadequacy where you believe that your life just never measures up with those around you. And then those feelings, they decompose like a, like a rotten fish into, into, a, into a complaining, into a protesting spirit. And then you end up imagining the worst thoughts about God. You fall into this delusion that God is holding back His goodness from you with a clenched fist. Or even worse, that He's abandoned you. And if that's you in any in any measurable degree, James says, okay, let's begin, let's first start by stop being so arrogant about your wisdom in life. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant. That arrogant pride that you know what's better for your life than God, he says, it's a lie against the truth, verse 14. That kind of wisdom is against the truth of how God defines true wisdom in Scripture. And then in verse 15, James says, that kind of wisdom is a, is a sham wisdom. It's a phantom wisdom. It's a false representation of the real thing. It's, it's a mirage in the desert of arrogance. It's an enemy spy pretending, pretending to be your best friend. He says, verse 15, this wisdom is is not coming down from above. That wisdom, that's not from heaven. That wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. James describes this counterfeit wisdom with three adjectives in ascending order of strength. When you attempt to accomplish something or, or gain something motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, no matter how elaborate the scheme no matter how clever you are in carrying out your plan, no matter how successful you are in, in, in attaining what you want, that wisdom is earthly. It is the opposite of heavenly. Okay, you, okay, fine. 
you were able to get your, your wife or your husband to do what you wanted because you, you pressed all the right emotional buttons. Okay, fine. You were able to get what you wanted in church because of how political, how politically savvy you were on the deacon board. Fine. You got the promotion you wanted by, by sta stabbing Fred from accounting in the back and slandering Susie in HR. That's an earthly wisdom because during the whole process, you fail to consider God's will. See, that wisdom next, verse 15, it's, it's, it's natural. There's nothing supernatural about that. It was devoid of the Spirit because it was, it was so selfish. It was only focused on advancing your own personal welfare and instead of considering the spiritual good of your friends and neighbors. It gets worse, James says. It's, it's earthly, it's natural, and then verse 15, it's demonic. That your methods and your ways, motivated by the self, that doesn't come from heaven. It, it was outsourced from hell. It was inspired by the demons themselves. You ignored the Holy Spirit and dwelling within you the entire time, and your counselors were, were, were the minions of for hell. And then James says, this is the kind of wisdom by which you live your life. You're not going to get what you think you will get. That, that actions committed or decisions made or words spoken, motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, always result, look at verse 16, where, where jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil practice. Bitter, the bitterly jealous person and the selfishly ambitious person, they think like this. He or she has what I really want. He has what I really wanted. And, and I need all of that to be happy. And if, they, and if they have it, then I should have it too. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, no matter how evil, no matter how sinful, to get what I'm owed because I deserve that too. James says, you see, that kind of attitude in the heart eventually leads to disaster. You may get what you want in the short term, but it will be at the expense of experiencing, verse 16, disorder and every evil practice eventually. You think to yourself, I'm going to fight to get what I want. I am going to scream. I'm going to yell. I'm going to gossip, slander. I'm going to form factions and recruit allies to get what I want. I will protest. I will ignore you. I will hide. I will rebel against God's word. I will indulge in sinful pleasures to take away the pain of not having what I want. I will make foolish decisions to get what he has. I will scream at my ki kids in order for my kids to be like Cindy's kids. I will threaten. I will bully. I will curse you to get out of my way. Or I will lie, manipulate, or use you to help me accomplish my worldly objectives, that only gets you what you want, if that even works, in the short term. It's a short-term fix. But you just wait a while, and your spouse will get fed up with you. You just wait a few years, and your kids will grow up to hate you. Yeah, you got that promotion, but sooner or later... The boss is going to figure you out and he's going to fire you. 
Okay, you won this church battle in the short term, but sooner or later, the church will implode. James says, where there's jealousy, where there's selfish ambition, eventually in the end, there is disorder in every evil practice. So don't be so short-sighted. It's just around the corner. It's just a matter of time before the house of cards fall. James says, that's not wisdom. And so now, he, as he's told us what counterfeit wisdom looks like in verses 14 through 16, now James defines what authentic wisdom produces in verses 17 and 18. And, and the fruit of wisdom James focuses on and narrows down on is the peace that wisdom produces. The whole process of wisdom in 17 and 18 is peace. The verses begin, they progress, they end in peace. Harmony and peace characterize a behavior that descends from above. The perfect peace that all of heaven enjoys can be spread here on earth through you and I as we practice peace. But before you can have peace, James, he begins this this list of effects that wisdom produces, these qualities of wisdom. He starts with purity, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. If you want, if you, before you can be a peacemaker, you need purity first. The first and preeminent attribute that wisdom produces is purity. It means inward purity and moral excellence. Of Paul's desire for the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 was to present the church as a, quote, pure virgin to Christ. It is unmixed, unalloyed, wholehearted devotion to Christ like pure gold. That, that's the main theme of James, right? A pure, wholehearted worship to Christ. To love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that's where value is found. That's where meaning is found in your pure worship to Christ. Meaning and value, my, my beloved, is not found in comparing yourself to other people. It is found in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your most valuable treasure is found in, in heaven, not in anything that this world can give you. Nothing in this life can compare to the riches of Christ's fullness of glory waiting for you in heaven. So fix your eyes there, James says. Aim there. Plan your life around that end destination. Wisdom is first pure. It is first pure. And he singles out a pure heart as the first quality of this list of Adjectives describing wisdom. And the, and the seven qualities that follow are, are specific dimensions of this overall purity of wisdom. And they're, they're arranged into three groups. And the first uh, group are, is, is, is peaceable, considerate, submissive. By the way, in the Greek, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, it, it sounds very beautiful. Uh, there's the uh, words, the consecutive words that sound with the E sound, the S sound... There are consecutive words sound with the ah sound. So as you were hearing this verse read, it would just sound very beautiful and poetic and, and wonderful. And, it, and you would hear the, the beauty of the words and you would, you would understand the beauty of, of what wisdom is. 
first word is peaceable, and that's the most important one. That, that starts the group. It comes at the head of the list. The, the word peace and the, the idea of peace is found again in verse 18 for further emphasis. Other Bible, trans, other Bible versions translate it peace-loving. It starts with peace with God through Christ, and then it, then it outflows into human-to-human peace. The next two traits, considerate and submissive, are probably subordinate to the first trait of being peaceable. The person who is considerate and submissive will correspondingly be peaceable or peace-loving. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above first above is first pure, then peaceable. Next, considerate. This wisdom is considerate. It is yielding to others. It's an attitude where you don't insist on every right of the letter of the law or custom. It's to be reasonable. The man or woman with this quality makes allowances for the weaknesses and ignorance of others. He takes the kindest perspective whenever possible. Next, wisdom is is submissive. A peaceable person, a peace-loving person, a peacemaker is considerate. He or she is submissive. And this is an attitude where you're easily persuadable about secondary matters. It's not weak or it's not credulous gullibility, but a willing deference to others when the clear truths of Scripture are not at stake. The second group of words to describe wisdom are modified by the by the term full of. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy is love that shows itself in action for those in need. James talked about, it, talked about that already in chapters 1 and 2 when he talked about our obligation to care for the poor in the church. It's full of good fruits. It produces good things, good actions. The, the, the last group of words in verse 17 is stated negatively, without doubting, without hypocrisy. The one without doubting is simple, impartial, straightforward, steady. It does not vacillate. It doesn't take one position in one circumstance and another position in a different situation. It operates on consistent principle. To be without hypocrisy is is similar in meaning. Not playing a part or a role like an actor on a stage. What you see is what you get. There's no masks. No games, no pretense. The the person without doubting and without hypocrisy, in other words, is someone who is stable and trustworthy and transparent. You can rely on this person for advice and counsel. And then in verse 18, James puts the exclamation point on true wisdom by again emphasizing the power of peacemaking. Verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers produce, in the atmosphere of peace they create wherever they go, a harvest of righteousness. The wisdom of peacemakers spread peace wherever they go. That's their superpower. They spread peace wherever they go, in their friendships, in their places of employment, in their marriages, in their churches. And the fruit that they bear and the harvest they produce through their peacemaking lives, James says, is righteousness. The the fruit is righteousness. The harvest is righteousness. Uh, Righteousness is is the harvest of their peacemaking superpower. And that righteousness includes all of the verses 
listed in verse 17, purity, peaceableness, consider, being considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. The peacemaker, they create this kind of environment. They, they disciple this person to go that particular way. This righteousness, this fruit of righteousness, it's the opposite of jealousy and ambition. It, it is the opposite of, of what jealousy and salvation and se selfish ambition bring, like disorder and every, every evil practice. These are the kinds of superheroes we need. Not those who wear capes and masks, but those who, who sow peace like, like farmers and, they harvest, and, and who harvest righteousness in due time. Your heart is pure toward God. The wisdom that it gives you in return will protect you when people tr try to compare you with others. And your greatest ambition is to know Christ more you will reject any attempt to, to allow your life to be measured by someone else's life. When your most valuable treasure is waiting for you in heaven, it frees you to love people instead of compete with them. Instead of feeling threatened and discouraged by what other people have that you don't have, your desire will be to help them become more like Christ. And, and you will let others help you be, become more like Christ. And what you want from them will no longer be these earthly gifts. You will want their godliness. You will see their spiritual maturity, and that will encourage you, and that will spur you on. You will love to be in the company of godly people because that makes you more godly. Biblical counselor Julie Rowe wrote, when value is rooted in our, in our creator, we are free to delight in another's differences and our own individuality. And we will find that our lives are more than enough. Your life, listen to me, your life is more than enough in Christ. Listen to me, you have everything in Christ. You have it all. You don't have too little. You have too much. So we must see our life the way God sees our life in his son, because that is what is really real. Reality is not what the world sees your life as. Reality is the way God sees your life. It's that posture of the heart that brings wisdom, that brings peacemaking powers. Well, we consider the differences between counterfeit wisdom from hell and authentic wisdom from heaven. And now we move to our second point in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we will examine the cause of division and disorder. Considering the cause of division and disorder, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, James's discussion of wisdom in verses 13 through 18 so far was very specifically focused. James was not really interested in talking about wisdom per se, but rather his focus was on the, the, the specific fruit of wisdom that brings order and peace to the church and to life. And so as and seen in this way, verses 13 through 18 prepares the way for James' rebuke of those quarreling in the church as described in the first three verses of chapter 4. And so the beginning of chapter 4, I believe, is not a new topic, but a shift of focus within the discussion of peacemaking. The problems described in the first three verses 
of chapter 4 demanded such a strong need for peacemakers that James lets the church know that if quarreling is the issue in the church and in life, then wisdom that is pure and peaceful is the solution. And so James asks rhetorically, in the same way he asked in chapter 3, verse 13, he asks, where does where is all the source of these church quarrels and conflicts lie? And he says these words in verse 1, these word, the word quarrels and conflicts, it's a very, very strong language. There were words used to describe bloody battles and wars that armies fought. And he's using these words metaphorically to, to describe intense fighting and conflict and division within the church. And sadly, what James describes in these opening verses is, is all too common in the church today. One day, a father hearing a commotion in his backyard looked outside. He saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated quarrel. And when he intervened, his daughter called back, Dad, we're just playing church. At the first church that I got saved in, it was doctrinally sound. He was an expository preacher. And... But six months later, I experienced my first church split. The pa associate pastor left, and the, all the leaders left. And, and this continued every two or three years, just church split after church split. And it was demoralizing, it was discouraging, it was disorienting. You didn't know what to think. What is going on here? Why does this happen so much? When will it ever stop? I was looking for churches after, uh, after I wanted to get into ministry. There are churches where, the, the, sadly, they'll describe, we just, we just got out of, a, out of a church split. And James says, what he asks rhetorically, is not the source of these conflicts, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says the, the source is, is it's bitter jealousy. It's selfish ambition. You're comparing your life with other people. You're finding your meaning and your value, and the standard is others around you instead of what God thinks of you. And so you lust, and you do not have, so you murder. And that word murder, many commentators think that this is literally people are killing each other. But, but I kind of take the view that it's, it's so strong that this is a, a murder of the heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's what Jesus said, that if you, if you call your brother Raka, it, it, you, you, you're the, you have the same kind of heart as a murderer. And I think that is because if I think it was actually murder going on in the churches, I think James would kind of talk about that more. I don't think he would just pass it up and, and talk about prayer. But in other words, it's really bad. You are envious and... You cannot contain, obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Some of you have, some of you know this. Some of you maybe have grown in, grown up in kind of dysfunctional marriages, and you, and you, and you're aware. You have experience that that your home it feels like a battlefield. It feels like you're at war. It feels like your your mother is on is on the on the on the enemy side and your father's on the other side fighting with each other. Sometimes it can feel like that in a relationship or in a roommate situation, or it can feel like that in a church 
where the church is no longer a house of God for, for worship, but it's this bloody battlefield where people are being killed. James says that comes from the, the lust in your heart, your sinful flesh. Sinful lusts that go unfulfilled, James says, become a danger to others. He says that we, we murder other people in our hearts when we cannot satisfy our fleshy lusts. And the reason we lust, partly, is again, because we're, we're constantly using the people around us as the measuring stick of what, it, what matters in life. We've let the world determine our value and worth instead of resting in Christ alone Personal inadequacy and insecurity has taken root in your heart like weeds overturning a garden. And when people around you become the, the standard of meaning, you become isolated. Because nobody can know your flaws. All your struggles and all your brokenness and all your pain, they've become defects that need to be hidden. They need to be concealed. Because everybody around you seems like they have it all together. If that's the standard, then, then you need to hide. Your value is determined by comparing your life with other people. You can't let anyone know how much you fall short because that would destroy you. And it's in this, and it's in this condition of the heart where lust grows and grows into hatred for other people because people either have what you don't have or people keep getting you, they keep getting in the way from what you want. And then this lust turns into murderous anger. And James says, you know what? Verse 2, you don't have because you don't ask. Instead of fighting about it, instead of manipulating others about it, instead of acting like a spoiled child, instead of ignoring God or ignoring His church until you get what you want, why don't you just pray? You're not getting what you want because you don't ask. Because if you actually prayed, you would have to evaluate what you're asking for. And you would realize that what you're asking for isn't, isn't of God. Some of you say, but I am praying, Pastor. I am praying. Well, verse 3 says there's another condition. Okay, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, on one hand, we don't receive because we never ask in prayer. On the other hand, when we do pray, we ask Him with the wrong attitude. Notice in verse 3, it doesn't say that God doesn't hear our prayers. It says that we do not receive what we pray for. The problem in prayer isn't on God's side, it's on our side. When our prayers are motivated by sinful fleshly pleasures, obviously our holy and good Father will not be an accessory to your sin. He will not be an accomplice. He's not going to give you what he punished his son on the cross for. He's not going to give you what he will punish in hell forever for. See, as a father, I would never give my children something I know would, would seriously harm them because it made them feel good. If they ask for a sharp knife, I'm not going to give it to them. If they ask them for a real gun with bullets, because they, it's going to be really fun shooting, shooting their playing, playing guns. I'm not going to give it to them. No matter how much they cry, no matter how much they scream, no matter how much they yell, I'll discipline them instead. Because I love them. Did you know the Father loves you a billion times more than I love my children? 
Was there anybody here stuck like an animal caught in an iron trap of jealousy and selfish ambition? My counsel to you from from the word this morning is that instead of ignoring God, instead of asking God for things motivated by selfish pleasures, repent and confess your sin to him this morning. Tell him how you've let the empty promises and pleasures of this world distract you from God's glory. Lay all your discontentment and jealousy down at the foot of the cross. Crucify every inadequacy and every sinful insecurity that treasuring the world and comparing your life with others brings with it. Instead, brothers and sisters, cast all your cares in God's sovereign hands. He will give you freedom. He will give you the freedom from the burden of of constantly wanting what others have, and he will give you the freedom from getting into quarrels and fights and angry, anger, contentious conflict with anyone who stands in your way. You don't have it now because God knows you don't really need it now. Trust him. We need more peacemakers in the church. We need more peacemakers in our neighborhoods. We need more peacemakers in the world. I heard a true story of, of two parents who went to divorce court, and during the entire time before the judge, they were arguing and they were yelling and they were going back and forth, and they brought their four-year-old son with them, and he was he was observing all of the chaos, all of the disorder, and this little boy was confused, this poor, this child, he was scared, he didn't, he didn't know what was going on before him. So doing what he could do, he took his mother's hand and he took his father's hand and he brought them together and he made them hold hands. I don't know what happened after that, but James says that the, that the picture, of the, that, that picture is the kind of superhero the world really needs. Your children, they don't, they don't need Spider-Man. They don't, they don't need Superman. They need a peacemaker in the home. They need a peacemaker. That's the kind of hero our church needs. It's the kind of hero your neighbors need. The power to make enemies hold hands in love. That's a real superhero. And this is what wisdom from above produces. And so James is trying to recruit that kind of hero this morning. Is there anyone here, anyone here who wants to join that team? 